Welcome to Side Talks. Podcast time. <laughs> it's a podcast. So what do you do on this podcast besides sing us in every day? Oh, I talk and I offend you and I offend people and I'm just generally aggressive and nasty. You ready? I, I guess <laughs> so. on that note. <laughs> Let's go. What's this shit? What's this shit? Well, it's like a low key yeah. Version. Do you like it better? It's I, not as shocking to your ears. Yeah, I, you know, I, I do. I appreciate that. Okay. I think the listener probably appreciates that. I bet that. they do. They didn't have to turn the volume down. Yeah. They didn't have to get them. Okay, well, I'm going to keep it low-key because this <laughs> film is not low-key. Uh-oh. This is like, a oh, all kinds of stuff is happening. There's a hole in the ground, right? Uh, okay. you, and again, You hate when that happens. Hate when that happens. This is, again, I'm, I've just dropped myself in some part of a film just randomly. You're trying to guess what it is. We're going to see how quickly you can get it. Please okay. don't do that thing you do where you let me just keep going even though you knew it after I said mess up. Okay, fine. Okay. So, and I'm not going to say, don't, do not, please don't get it twisted. I'm not saying Mesopotamia. Okay. This is an example. But there's a hole in the ground it's a somewhere. It's a city. In a city. City. Um, and there's a cop that's like, or I don't, maybe it wasn't a cop. It's just a voice. It's like, everybody move back. Uh huh. And the gra- ground starts really, this sort of gargantuan cracking starts okay. happening. I think I know what this is. Okay. Is this War of the Worlds? Yeah, you got it. You yeah, this it. is the emergence of the first tripod, which is the best scene in the movie. When the tripod comes out and starts zapping everybody and turning them to ash, it was a really kind of shocking and brutal uh, vision of, of alien invasion from Steven Spielberg, who yeah. um, kind of shook off a lot of his old sentimental tricks for the first two thirds of this movie. And then the last third of this oh, movie it- is what tanks it. He makes up for um, it. It's also like two hours too long. Um, I like this movie overall. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because, again, it, it does get nasty, but the ending of this movie is is a disaster. In fact, everything after Tim Robbins shows up in the basement of that house, I could take or leave. But the first two-thirds of this movie are really good. Once again, Thomas fucking Cruise. Thomas fucking Cruise in a role that requires him to run and scream, which are the two best things that he does. <laughs> He's so, such a strange little man. He's so good at running, though. Nobody runs like him. Oh, sarcasm. No, seriously. He's a good cinematic runner. That's a skill. Okay. Like most people, when they run, look stupid as hell. But every time he runs on screen, it's like, oh, that's a man who has somewhere to go. Oh, I thought you were really, truly being sarcastic. I no, I genuinely mean that. a great runner. That. Well, yeah. interesting. Tom Cruise is good at many things, including running, I guess. And acting. Oh, well, the verdict's out. Um, but he does look handsome in this. And I will say, like, you know, I'm usually watching this, like, rolling my eyes. Yeah. This scene, um, while I don't love it like you do, clearly, there's a really cool moment where the ground sort of becomes a giant sinkhole and yeah. a car goes into the hole. And I really liked when the car then gets booted back out of the hole. Yeah, hell yeah. That was a really enjoyable moment. So um, that rarely happens in What's This Shit. And now, a look at what we're watching this week. All right, so it's time for what we're watching. Yeah, and what are you watching? Well, you know, I'm in the middle of a move, so I haven't been watching a ton. But the as when we're recording this, the Academy Awards are coming up on Sunday night. Right. Um, which, you know, you're going to hear this after the Oscars. You'll know who won. It was probably Nomadland. That's my on-the-record prediction. Yeah. Um, if Promising Young Woman wins, I am going to do a dance like nobody's ever seen. Uh, well, it's not going to happen. <laughs> I know. I know. Um, the, it, Nomadland winning is going to be good though. That's, that's, I, a, I, that's a good winner. I'm not mad about yeah. that. It's a great film. It's a great movie. Um, 
so in preparation for the Oscars, I kind of went on this little mini marathon that I'm kind of in the middle of, of Oscar-y or Oscar-adjacent movies from the past, you know, forever, um, from my lifetime, though, that I missed for whatever reason. And there are some big titles that people, you know, saw on the art house circuit, you know, back in, in the late nineties or early two thousands that I just missed. I, you know, I was pretty young and I caught a lot of that stuff, but I didn't catch everything. So I wanted to go over some of those titles, um, in roughly the order in which I liked them. Um, the first is a movie from 2001 called Iris, um, hmm. directed by a British stage director named, uh, Richard Erie. Um, it stars Judy Dench, uh, Kate Winslet and Jim Broadbent. All three of them were oh, shitty, such shitty actors in this thing. Oh yeah. Yeah. Real, <laughs> yeah. Real, real slobs. Um, all three of them were nominated for Oscars. Jim Broadbent won the Academy award for best supporting actor. Um, I didn't like this movie though. Um, hmm. It's the story of British Dame, novelist. Hold on. Dame Judy Dench. Oh, yes, I'm sorry. And you didn't like this movie. I need to put respect on her name. She is Dame Judy Dench. And you didn't like this movie? No, I didn't. Um, the performances Woo! are good, but this is kind of a messy biopic. Uh, a look at the British novelist Irish Murdoch, who's played in her younger years at, uh, by this very bohemian Kate Winslet, who, you know. Sidebar, Kate Winslet's wonderful in everything, and we need to do a lightning round about Kate Winslet. Okay. Is she even good boho style? Yeah. No, she's good in the movie. Okay. She's really good in the movie. Everybody's really good in the movie. Uh, um, you, you don't like her in Ammonite. Let me remind you I of don't, that. I don't like her in Ammonite, um, but I generally do like Kate Winslet a lot. Uh, anyway... Um, it sort of cuts back and forth between um, when a young Iris Murdoch meets the man who will be her husband, John Bailey, who is a, a British literary critic, um, with something like 40 years later when they're living in old age and Iris is diagnosed with Alzheimer's and succumbs to that disease. So it's a bummer. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But – you don't really get a sense of who Iris Murdoch was as an artist through this movie. You certainly don't really get a sense of who John Bailey was. Um, uh, he, he's kind of played as this kind of soft-spoken bumbler by Jim Broadbent, who just adores his wife, and that's really the only quality that you get out of him. Though he does get increasingly frustrated uh, as time goes on. Anyway, the movie, it's kind of a jumble. It's kind of a mess jumping back and forth between those timelines and not really giving us too much insight um, or anything really to tie the movie together. Uh, so a, a bit of a disappointment because I like all three of those actors. And I honestly think the only reason Jim Broadbent won that Oscar is because he had a really big 2001. Also that year, he played the owner of the Moulin Rouge in Moulin Rouge, which yeah. is a very different performance. But honestly, give him the Oscar for that. Yeah. Um, so so that was the first one. The second one <laughs> um, that I watched is a movie called Gods and Monsters from okay. uh, 1998, the, a biopic about Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein director James Whale. Uh, this was written and directed by Bill Condon. He won the Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay for this movie. Uh, Ian McKellen and Lynn Redgrave were nominated for their performances in this movie. This is about James Whale in the last days of his life, reminiscing about his career and his time serving in World War One and his uh, relationships. He, you know, in classic Hollywood, very uncommonly was an out and proud gay man who did not 
hide that fact at all, which was very unusual for that time. Yeah. Um, and Ian McKellen gives one of the best performances you'll ever see in this movie is James Whale. He's fantastic. I mean, it's Ian McKellen, yeah. obviously. He's fantastic. But um, I, I, this was always a blind spot for me, and watching it, I was just kind of blown away by it. I really like the movie, too. Uh, Brendan Fraser also co-stars as, like, the hunky gardener who uh, Whale's estate hires to take oh, care of right. his grounds. This is before he ate the world. Yes, uh, and yeah. he's he's like chiseled out of marble in this movie, mm -hmm. um, yep. and just very very beautiful. Um, and There's no way that man got the size he is eating food. He's eating something else. Well, but also Brendan Fraser apparently really hurt his back, so there it, it, there was some sort of like physical Still ailment. Still eating cars, I think. Well, anyway, I'm sorry know. for interrupting. Go ahead. Um, anyway. Uh, everybody in this movie is really good. The screenplay is wonderful. It deserved that Oscar win. This is the year that Ian McKellen lost the Academy Award for Best Actor to Roberto Benigni in Life is Beautiful, which is one of the most cringeworthy <laughs> decisions the Academy made in, in like the past 25 years. All right. And that's saying a lot, dude. That's uh, saying a lot. Speaking of cringeworthy decisions, yesterday I watched for the first time the 1989 winner of the Academy Award for Best Picture. <laughs> Driving Miss Daisy, <laughs> uh, a movie I had never seen before, uh, starring, of course, Oscar winner Jessica Tandy as the titular Miss Daisy and Morgan Freeman as her uh, chauffeur, uh, Hoke. Uh, he got an Oscar nomination for it. Dan Aykroyd got an Oscar nomination oh, no. for this movie. Um I, I had never seen this movie. Obviously, its reputation in the past several decades has not been very good. Um, watching it, I can see why. It, it kind of falls into, um, well, honestly, kind of to, to go back an episode, kind of falls into Juno territory for me, which is like, I mean, okay, that's fine. I don't really see why anybody got heated about that or even passionately fell in love with that. I really just don't understand it. It's a nice movie. It obviously like takes a comforting and uh, soft look, if you can call it that, uh, at, at some pretty complicated issues, ding, especially ding, 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 like ding, 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 the ding. racial issues of That's the day. That's why it really candy coats some, some pretty right. hardcore racial issues and makes it really comfortable for white people to be like, oh, I know all about the civil rights movement now. But but it's not even really even about the civil <laughs> rights movement. The movie's not really about anything. It it's about it how... It doesn't matter. It makes people feel better about that particular era. Like, I, I those movies are, are definitely out there. With, you know, The Help is an egregious version of that, right? <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't even feel that Driving Miss Daisy was as egregious of a of a white comfort movie as even something like Green Book. Um, Ooh, because I mean, it, it just zeroes in on these two characters and almost completely removes the context of the times that they're living in. In fact, the movie, which I did not know watching it, apparently takes place between like the 1940s and the 1970s. You could have fucking, you know, told me that it takes place one summer and I'd have believed That's you. That's a good point. Like it, it's, it, it apparently is a decade spanning relationship, but it, you know, it's just not a very compelling movie on a dramatic level. And I think the only reason that it catches on is because, you know, well, obviously it makes people feel nice. Like, look at those nice friends, but also again, like the performances are really good. Like Jessica Tandy and Morgan Freeman are both really, really good. Um, but not an effective movie and certainly not 
best picture worthy. I bet if this movie had not won best picture, it would be remembered more fondly as the nice little movie with Morgan Freeman that it is. I don't know Um, about that, Corey. I think that any time that you learn something from reading the synopsis after watching a film, it's very problematic. Well, that, I mean, that's a good point. I, I just, you know, this was not only the year of do the right thing, which wasn't nominated for best picture infamously. Uh, This was the year of, uh, Dead Poet Society and Field of Dreams, right? So if you're going for feel-good movies, you've got two much superior options right there. Hmm, I feel like those are all partying at the same party. Oh, no. Those other two movies are much better than Driving oh, Miss Daisy. Oh, I think that they're all... Uh, I think they're holding hands. I mean, mm. they're all in the same world. Sam, you want to make some notes right there? Because I feel a five-minute I'll, fight. I'll going. argue with you about Dead Poets Society. Oh, I will, too. And, I will um, definitely argue with Field of Dreams, I don't know. I don't I'm know. not going to I'm not gonna play around with Field of Dreams. That's right. some daddy shit that people get into, but I can't, I'm not <laughs> touching. But I will fucking go all day and night over Dead Poets Society. Okay. All right. Well, um, let's rumble. You know. So anyway, that's what I've been watching. Those those three, I'm I'm still trying to catch up on other Oscary things that I haven't seen. Looking at you, Ed Harris in Pollock. Um, oh, this is a dark road you're yeah, going down. I, and you know, Nick Nolte in Affliction, or you know, any number of other like little Oscary <laughs> things from from the '90s. The one great thing that Driving Miss Daisy did bring us is that it's just the backseat joke that you can always make. You uh-huh. know, anytime that somebody makes you ride in the backseat, and you can do that one. Um, and that's my favorite part about the film, actually, is just the joke that it, it allows to happen over and over again. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what I'm watching is I've gone back and watched a couple of things okay. recently, um, one of which is Baby Driver. Hey, good movie. Yeah. Two canceled folk in it. Uh, at least, <laughs> <laughs> at least, at least two. Good could, point. Could be, uh, could be more. Two I and, mean, let's call it two and counting. Right. <laughs> um, Lily James knows what she did. <laughs> it's a really enjoyable film. It's so cheesy. It's it, so it, good. Though. It's so cheesy, but you know, it, it brings me to this point of like. It's a little bit like Future Islands, okay? I I don't think anybody's ever drawn a connection between Baby Driver and Future Islands, and I'm here to do that. Which okay. is like the performance, right? right. Is so earnest yeah and so i do think that the intention behind baby driver and the like you know the just trying to just push cool down your throat in this particular way is done so earnestly but it it kind of works i think it totally works and it's in and is really fun in that yeah. way uh whereas i'm not saying future islands is fun but but the performance is his performance is so when he it's just so earnest um, it's and, captivating on that yeah, level for sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. So anyway, I have a, I have a very similar feeling there. And so anytime I start getting into the territory where I feel like, boy, this is really a little cheesy for me, I've, I'm very forgiving of it. Hmm. I, I I find it to be really fun. The the one part that really sits with me, uh, or maybe I should say, just doesn't sit well with me, is the the flashbacky, black and white, kind of moments that have this sort of fifties. Oh yeah, I know what you're talking about the the sort of fantasy yeah. things. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. That that I really the film is a better film without that, sure. and I don't really know why they want to dip to that so much. It feels it feels something of the '90s in, in this film in a way that's not it's not tipping its hat to it. It's just indulging in it. Yeah. And that part is a bummer, but mm. uh, it, not enough to like you know not make me enjoy this film and the car chases and the fact that it's atlanta i i you know i just really it's it's really really fun edgar wright's a wonderful director wonderful director not gonna no complaints there um uh, 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 about him as a 
in general, but the, some complaints about Baby Driver. Mm. Um, so yeah, I mean that's that's it. And then I, I went back and watched, uh, even though I talked about it recently, so I won't spend too much time on it. I rewatched Promising Young Woman. Yeah. Um, and really, really, really freaking. I think I like it even more on the second watch mm-hmm. than I did on the first. I have not had a second watch of that yet. Really, really like it, and felt. I think part of the enjoyment in the second time around was getting to the moment where you. I don't want to give too much away, but you kind of get to a moment where you think the film is going to go one direction. And, and it, it would have been a real cop out if it had. It so, really goes in the complete opposite direction. Yes, it does. <laughs> and and it's such a tonal shift at one point that was felt more on the second viewing. Yeah. And it is interesting because my examination on, on the second viewing is this, right? Which is part of my experience the first time and getting so bummed when I thought it was going a particular way is that what the director and the writer director here I think is really doing is tapping into that expectation of that's what so many other films have done. Right. So many other films have let, and again, try not to give away too much here, but have let a sort of hero type come and save the day and just landed there. And so it really, by tapping into my expectations of what, uh, uh, female led female, really strongly sort of feminist leaning film, often in the past has done, mm-hmm. even with that context, right? It, by going against that grain, it it just, it really makes you reflect on the expectations and why you have them, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think it's really brilliant. Yeah. So very happy on the second viewing of Promising a Woman. It should, uh, it's nominated for so many things this year, mm-hmm. and I hope it scoops up at least one. I'm, I'm guessing it'll get a nod of some kind. If it got Best Picture again, I would be shocked and elated and will party hard i would not be surprised if this takes best original screenplay though i think if you are listening to this well you already know by now yeah that's true uh i hope it does it's a it's a great movie and if it did somehow win best picture then just i'm still partying right now (laughs) nomadland and now we'd like to welcome charlie brown sanders the third to the studio for his segment film history minute with charlie brown Life is a bitch, and she's back in heat, is Randy, the Macho Man Savage's favorite line from John Carpenter's They Live. The line, I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass, and I'm all out of bubblegum, was ad-libbed by Roddy Rowdy Piper. Piper had previously written this line in his notebook of potential verbal bits during his wrestling career. He shared the notebook with Carpenter, and they agreed this particular line fit the character and the film perfectly. Piper did eventually go on to use it at a wrestling match. John Carpenter wanted a truly rugged individual to play Nada. He cast wrestler Roddy Piper in the lead role after seeing him in WrestleMania 3. Carpenter remembered Keith David's performance in The Thing and wrote the role of Frank specifically for him. Vince McMahon didn't want Piper to do the film. Yeah, I figured, said Carpenter. McMahon told Piper that he would find him a different film at the same pay rate within four weeks. But Piper passed and ended up splitting with the WWF. Carpenter asked why, and Piper states plainly that McMahon is a control freak. When I came back to wrestling, I was twice as important as when I left, he says, and he credits Carpenter and the success of the film. Piper credits Carpenter and They Live with jumpstarting the wrestler-turned-actor migration. On the commentary, Carpenter pointed out that Piper had made more movies than he had. I've only made 20, says the director. Yeah, but you made 20 good ones. 
Carpenter brought real homeless folks into the production for several scenes and smaller characters and gave them food as well as paychecks. I thought that was a really classy thing to do, said Piper. Piper recalls it being uncomfortably easy getting into the mindset of a homeless person. I lived on the streets myself, he said, so it didn't take long for me to get that kind of feeling of what was going on. Everybody's got their own little life, and they think that's it, and nobody's helping nobody. The abandoned, overgrown locale where the homeless camp sits is still undeveloped to this day. They live opened at number one at the U.S. box office and disappeared from theaters soon after. Carpenter is apparently still fascinated that the film opened at number one at the box office. Originally, it was scheduled for an October 21, 1988 release. The film was moved to November 4th in order to avoid competition with Halloween 4, the return of Michael Myers. Interestingly, John Carpenter had been producer and co-writer of the first three Halloween films and director of the very first one, but Halloween 4 was the first in the series that was made entirely without his involvement. Another reason to move the release was to capitalize on the November 8th presidential election, in tandem with the film's social commentary. For years after the film's release, and even on the movie's DVD commentary, Roddy Piper maintained that the film was based on an actual incident in the 1950s in which a company manufactured a TV, planted subliminal messages in women's brains, instructing them to make extravagant purchases. Piper was unaware that the documentary he had seen, La Fiere Brunswick, was in fact a comedy short. Piper's shirtless scenes raised a conspiracy theory that no one but Piper was aware of. The rumor was that you had taken my head and put it on someone else's body, said the actor, and people don't believe that that's my body. What are you talking about, asked Carpenter incredulously. Apparently, Piper was dogged at subsequent wrestling events by fans claiming the film had used computers to falsify his physique. That's ridiculous, says Carpenter. On an episode of Monster Vision in 1997, Piper mentioned that John Carpenter had wanted him to discuss the film's political subtext, which was critical of Reaganomics, while doing promotions for the film. However, due to being in the United States on a green card, Piper felt it wasn't his place to discuss American politics. Carpenter recalls an early screening at Los Angeles CityWalk, where a young kid exited the film seemingly confused with what he had seen. He had been brought up with Rambo films, he said. He was expecting it to be jingoistic and raha, and it bothered him a little. That the point of the film was instead the idea of class divide. The film references climate change, which was known to scientists by the time, although it was nowhere near as well understood by the general public as it became in the following century. The mention of climate change is on the hacker's television broadcast. Finally, They Live's story about aliens that are only seen by people wearing special sunglasses is not the first time this basic plotline has been used. The first was in a TV movie called The Love War, made in 1970. Thank you for listening to Sock Talks Podcast! Wow, I don't know what to do with that at all. Uh, you just... You're like one of the, the little um, puppet guys in Labyrinth. Oh, that's well, what that's kind of cool. Like. Yeah. Well, we are your own personal cinematic Kelly Taylor and Brenda Walsh. Team Brenda, bitch. Yeah, okay. Uh, thanks. <laughs> I understand that reference, but I have nothing to say about it. Well, I mean, what were you Team Kelly or were you Team Brenda? I was Team. I that show was on when I was like 
eight years old. I have no memory of it. I didn't watch it. Okay, well, just know I'm Team Brenda. I was I, I was a little boy, but I was a little X Files boy, not a little nine hundred two one zero boy. Mm. Well, thanks to Beltwell Studios. We appreciate you. Visit us on the internet at www.sidewalkfest.com. We're also at Sidewalk Film on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, where you can find all the information about what's going on at the Sidewalk Cinema right now. Beltwell Studios Podcast Division. Your words, our expertise.